Support for NPR and the following message come from the Walton Family Foundation, working to solve social and environmental problems to improve lives today and benefit future generations. More information at waltonfamilyfoundation.org. Hey, before we get to the show, I want to tell you about a podcast from TED called Work Life with Adam Grant. In each episode of Work Life, Adam takes you inside the minds of some of the world's most unusual professionals to discover the key to a better work life. This week, the jerk-free office. Can it actually exist? And what's the right way to deal with the jerks who remain? You can find Work Life with Adam Grant wherever you listen to podcasts. This is the TED Radio Hour. Each week, groundbreaking TED Talks. TED Talks. Uh, TED. TED. Technology. Entertainment. Design. Design. Is that really what stands for? <laughs> I've never known that... Delivered it, at TED conferences around the world. It's the gift of the human imagination. We've had to believe in impossible things. The true nature of reality beckons from just beyond. Those talks, those ideas, adapted for radio. From NPR. I'm Guy Raz. So I want to begin the show today with a story. And it's about something that happened in Cologne, Germany in 1975. It's a story about the legendary jazz pianist Keith Jarrett. But it doesn't actually start with him. I think of this actually from the point of view of Vera Brandes in many ways. This is writer and economist Tim Harford. Vera Brandes was this young girl, 17 years old, who had somehow managed to persuade Keith Jarrett, who was already a big star at the time, to come to Cologne. And she had persuaded the Cologne Opera House, which is a big venue, 1,400 seats, to host Keith Jarrett. Wow. And she's just, she's just a kid, but she loves jazz. And so she's hugely ambitious, and her skills and her experience do not match up to make this happen. Yeah. And there's some miscommunication. And when she takes Keith out onto the stage for the rehearsal to meet the piano, it's the wrong piano. It's a rehearsal model. It's from some little corner somewhere. Hmm. It wasn't even a grand piano. Vera said it was like half a, half a piano. And the, the keys were sticking. The pedals didn't work. The felt was all worn away in the upper register. So the upper register sounded very harsh and, and tinny. And because it's not a grand piano, it's, it's, not, it's not loud enough. So there are a lot of reasons why this is a bad piano. So, so for people who don't know anything about Keith Jarrett, like, what do you know about the kind of person he is? Well, he's famous for his perfectionism. I mean, in, in many ways, he's a, he's a very free-thinking uh, musician. He does these entirely improvised concerts. He walks out on the stage. He sits down at the piano and he just plays whatever comes into his head. And, and so... Th- that sounds as though this is a very uh, loose, free-thinking, flexible person, but but he has a reputation as insisting that everything be perfect. Hmm. So the perfectionist meets the world's worst piano, and it's a sellout concert. Everyone's going to be there in a couple of hours. There is no way to get a replacement. It's pouring with rain in Cologne at the time, and basically, Jarrett said, I, I won't play. I'm not going to play. Hmm. So this is not going well, right, for Vera? Yeah. This is not going well at all. <laughs> so she she goes out. She finds Keith Jarrett. He's sitting in a car waiting to be driven back to the hotel. 
and she goes and she knocks on the window and he looks out and he sees this 17-year-old kid drenched in the rain and she just begs him to play. She begs him. And I think at that moment, he just feels sorry for her and he realizes she's just a kid, 1,400 people are about to show up at this concert and there's going to be no concert. And he says, never forget, only for you. And he agrees to play. Wow. This is a man who hands out cough drops to the audience so they do not disturb the performance. (laughs) Yes. I don't know what exactly was going through his head. But yeah, he he sits down and, and away he goes. And it's magic. It is an absolutely astonishing performance. And it, it, within moments, it's, it's apparent that he's producing something astonishing. It was supposed to be a disaster. He's given this unplayable piano, and he doesn't just cope. He doesn't just produce a decent performance because he's a genius. He produces what many people think of as his best performance. You must have read accounts of that, obviously, of that night. Did people in that audience know that they were watching something extraordinary? Well, I think they they were spellbound. Whether they knew that it was particularly unusual, maybe they thought it's always like this. I don't know. But the certainly the the music has stood the test of time because... Jarrett and his producer, Manfred Eicher, decided they were going to record this concert as a cautionary tale. This is, this is as a demonstration, they have documentary evidence of what a disaster sounds like. If you don't give Keith the right piano, this is what you get. They never expected that the music would be releasable as an album, let alone the Cone Concert album, which is the best-selling jazz piano album of all time. So what was the spark that jump-started Keith Jarrett's creative energy that night? What allowed for that breakthrough? Because at the heart of any great achievement is creativity. But is it a force that can be cultivated, that can be teased out to help anyone create something unforgettable? Well, that's what we're going to explore on the show today. Ideas about jumpstarting creativity. Here's more from Tim Harford on the TED stage. Keith Jarrett had been handed a mess. He'd embraced that mess, and it soared. But let's think for a moment about Jarrett's initial instinct. He didn't want to play. Of course, I think any of us in any remotely similar situation would feel the same way, we'd have the same instinct. But Jarrett's instinct was wrong, and I think our instinct is also wrong. I think we need to gain a bit more appreciation for the unexpected advantages of having to cope with a little mess. So let me give you some examples. The psychologist Daniel Oppenheimer, a few years ago, teamed up with high school teachers, and he asked them to reformat the handouts that they were giving to some of their classes. 
So the regular handout would be formatted in something straightforward, such as Helvetica or Times New Roman. But half these classes were getting handouts that were formatted in something sort of intense, like Hattenschweiler, or something with a zesty bounce, like Comic Sans italicized. Now, these are really ugly fonts, and they're, they're difficult fonts to read. But at the end of the semester, students were given exams, and the students who'd been asked to read the more difficult fonts had actually done better in their exams in a variety of subjects. And the reason is, the difficult font had slowed them down, forced them to work a bit harder, and so they learned more. These disruptions. Help us solve problems. They help us become more creative. I mean, I think when people hear the word creativity, they often think that it's someone else who has that, or it's this elusive thing that is, you know, gifted to people with talent. But I suspect that's not right. Right? That that creativity actually is just a like a skill, like any any other skill. Well, having—I'm not a creativity researcher, but I have read a lot of creativity research, and one of the most obvious things is that nobody agrees what this thing is,、yeah. and people have lots and lots of different ways of talking about it, and lots and lots of different ways of measuring it. But I, I tend to agree that creativity is、um, different from talent. It's different from technical skill. If you're always starting in the same place, your skill and your abilities and your habits. Just become a cliche, and if you are, if you want to go somewhere different, suddenly the skill will find a new way to express itself, and you'll reach new heights. What's the best way to finish somewhere different? The best way to finish somewhere different is to start somewhere different. So, I want to talk about somebody from the world of rock and roll. His name is Brian Eno. He is an ambient composer, rather brilliant. He's also a kind of catalyst. Behind some of the great rock and roll albums of the last 40 years, so he's worked with David Bowie on Heroes. He worked with U2 on Achtung Baby and the Joshua Tree. He's worked with Coldplay. He's worked with everybody. And what does he do to make these great rock bands better? Well, he makes a mess. He disrupts their creative processes. It's his role to tell them that they have to play the unplayable piano. And one of the ways in which he creates this disruption is through this、uh, remarkable deck of cards. They're called the oblique strategies. He developed them with a friend of his. When they're stuck in the studio, Brian Eno will reach for one of the cards. He'll he'll draw one at random, and、um, he'll make the band follow the instructions on the card. So this one, ah,、uh, change instrument roles. Yeah, everyone swap instruments. Drummer on the piano. Brilliant, brilliant idea. Make a sudden, destructive, unpredictable action. Incorporate. These cards are disruptive. The musicians hate them. <laughs> so、uh, Phil Collins was playing drums on an early Brian Eno album. He got so frustrated, he started throwing beer cans across the studio. But the thing is, it just because you don't like it doesn't mean it isn't helping you. You know,、um, just imagining Phil Collins throwing a beer can across the room is is <laughs> enough for me to to want to jumpstart creativity. Yeah, he was just so frustrated. Yeah, the way we've been discussing this, it sounds as though this is a very refined plane for people to be on. And you know, Keith Jarrett, David Bowie—I mean, these are geniuses. And 
I'm not a genius. I mean, maybe you're a genius guy. I don't know. I'm not. And I think most of the people listening to this will be thinking, I, this doesn't apply to me. But actually, it, this is true, I think, on a, on a very everyday scale. And there's a wonderful example from London that could not be more everyday, where a few years ago, the London Underground suffered a partial shutdown because there was a strike, it was a labor dispute. And the, the shutdown lasted two days. So for those two days, everybody who was used to commuting around London probably had to find a different way to get to work. And so three economists got hold of the data set and looked at what people had done. And they found that a very large number of people commuted to work exactly the same way every day. And then during the strike, they changed. They found a different way. And then a substantial minority of them never changed back. So they realized, because of a 48-hour shutdown, they realized they had been doing it wrong their entire lives. And it was only when the disruption comes in and, and says, no, you can't do it your normal way. You have to find a new way. Tens of thousands of people went, wow, actually the new way's better. I always think of that. How many things do we do in our lives? Not these soaring feats of creativity, just everyday things. How many things do we do that if we were forced to do it differently, we would never go back? That's Tim Harford. He's an economist and a writer. Tim will be back later in the show with another idea on how to jumpstart creativity. Stay with us. I'm Guy Raz, and you're listening to the TED Radio Hour from NPR. This message comes from NPR sponsor K-12 with more than 20 years' experience powering tuition-free schools that offer personalized learning from state-certified teachers. With the K-12-powered Stride Career Prep Program, students gain the skills and confidence they need to prepare for their next steps and create a future that's right for them. Parents can be there for their students along the way to help keep them on track and share in new discoveries. Learn more at k12.com NPR. This message comes from NPR sponsor State Farm. Here's a fun fact. Insurance is less expensive than you think, thanks to State Farm's surprisingly great rates. Another fun fact? Leonardo da Vinci invented modern-day scissors as a method for cutting canvas. Now that you're an expert on inventors with extremely Italian names, it's time to get great insurance at a surprisingly great rate. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. It's the TED Radio Hour from NPR. I'm Guy Raz. And on the show today, ideas about jumpstarting creativity. And we tend to think of creativity as something that's a unique part of being human. But what if it's not? Is there a future in your mind, maybe not in your lifetime or mine, but a future where artificial intelligence is as creative as the most creative humans in history? Well, that's hard. I mean, we consider ourselves to be intelligent and creative, but like, I'm not as creative as the most creative human in history. But I'm creative enough, and most of our algorithms are creative enough. This is Steve Engels. He's a professor at the University of Toronto, where he researches artificial intelligence and creativity. The standard that we use for creativity, we look at, you know, like the masters, right? Like the, the ultimate musicians, the ones that create something new that's never been seen before that other people then emulate. Um, but, you know, it's not really fair to compare AI right now with the best that humanity has to offer. But rather, if it's as good as average humans, that's still 
that's still a pretty good achievement. Okay, so let's let's talk about humans for a second, uh, because we are born and we're like this unformed blob of stuff. And then over time, uh, you know, we learn stuff, we grow, we experience the world, and we there are all these inputs and experiences we have. And then with all that, you have these tools to think in a creative way, right? That's kind of how it works. Yep. And that's part of the basis of the research we were doing, is that creating artificial intelligence is trying to create things that emulate human behavior, especially when it comes to cognition. And so, yeah, the idea of trying to create creativity is oftentimes trying to say, well, what kind of things do human beings do when they're presented with a blank slate? You know, like they take their lifetime of experiences and then they put it together in sort of random ways in order to try to create some overall product. And the artificial intelligence that we create is trying to do a lot of the same thing. It just doesn't have a lifetime experience to build up. Here's more from Steve Engels on the TED stage. What is the difference mainly behind uh, computer intelligence and human intelligence? Can computers be as creative as humans? With enough data, a computer should be able to take all the things that humans can do, regardless of what the task is, and be able to do it as well as a human can. So this gets into the research that I've been doing. Um, I started off as a natural language programmer when I first started in AI, which meant that I was doing a lot of things with English text. And what we were doing were things that could actually read through English text and understand the things that it was reading and create models for it to be able to recognize the patterns within it. Well, we use these same models not just to record and classify text, but to be able to generate it. There was an example of someone who actually made a research paper generator where it actually created a journal article and submitted it to a conference and got accepted. So this is the sort of thing where computers are able to create new, interesting, original texts. And this led into my research on music generation. I have software where you can feed in music files, and it'll actually read through and understand the patterns in the music and be able to generate original music in that style in real time forever. At first, it wasn't great. But over time, we've managed to build these things. And now it actually has sort of a larger scale progression so that it now has a sense of a start, a middle, and an end. And it actually has like an overall musical flow. So how, like walk me through this, like how does a machine compose a piece of music that is beautiful and resonant and emotive? Ah, beautiful and resonant is fine. There's lots of examples of beautiful music. Listen to enough of them, and you can start to try to figure out what those patterns are and figure out how you'd create something kind of in that style. But emotive, it's as hard to pin down as you would think, trying to figure out, okay, well, what kind of songs are happy? So you could maybe say, okay, well, these are the songs that make me happy. Can you make other songs that make me happy? And it's possible. But it's about what you'd expect for a human to do, too. If you gave them like a hundred songs that are considered happy music, they would probably look at these things, try to figure out what they had in common, and then see if they could reproduce some of that. But, you know, that's why it's so hard for people to be successful at music or art. The idea of looking at these things and then trying to make something new and trying to capture that, the AI is just trying to solve that same task and is running to the same problems. Do you imagine a future where the creativity produced by AI, by artificial intelligence, can actually jumpstart or, or supercharge human creativity? Well, that's the main thing that we've been working on is 
we can make things that can either stimulate human creativity, get people who are stuck, who have like a writer's block, and then help them see enough examples to make the neural connections in their brain to help figure out what it is that they want to do. So artificial intelligence right now has the ability to help provide almost like an assistant for bigger, more creative tasks. Now, I've been working in artificial intelligence for a while, you know, basically since the 90s. My whole thing is just to say, well, you know what? If AI has been making advances in all these different areas, one of the next ones that's going to be advancing into is creativity. Because really, I mean, when we talk about what creativity is, it's really just intelligence, having fun. Whether it's a human intelligence or an artificial intelligence, the same rules apply. If you let this thing train off of existing pieces and see where it can go, it can create all sorts of interesting things. You know, now I do work in video game design. Um, people use the software in order to generate background music for a level, and then as you move from one section of a level to another, the music will change as it goes from one model to the next. Certain images have been done where neural networks will train off of existing images and create new original pieces of art, things that no one has ever seen before. And some of these neural networks, when you don't give it a specific task or a specific domain and you just let it roam free, create some things that we've never seen before. You know, the AI equivalent of dreams. So I believe that our future is not just going to be limited by, you know, what kind of things computers are able to make. We're actually going to be the ones who are teaching these new generations of computers how to do new things. Earlier on the show, we heard the story of Keith Jarrett playing the Kong concert, and everything that led up to that moment, his frustrations, his anger at this piano, how he stood there and he <laughs> pounded on the keys without rehearsing, without any plan, and he produced one of the greatest live records of all time. And I still I can't get my head around a non-human doing that or replicating that. It wouldn't be able to produce that moment. That's definitely true because, I mean, that's something that that inspires you through a series of experiences that are that are unique to what a human can experience. But I think that for again the ninety-five percent of us uh, and the creativity that we need in our lives, artificial intelligence is definitely a tool that has illustrated that we can actually create things based on just what we have seen before. The thing that we're always lacking, though, is that 5%. You know, the 5% which we look to as what makes us distinctly human. You know, not the average composer or, you know, the average artist, but rather, you know, the masters. You know, and that's a level of innovation where you're creating something that can't be modeled off of anything else because it is completely original and new. That's the part that is going to be ever elusive. That's Steve Engels. He's a professor at the University of Toronto in the Department of Computer Science. You can see Steve's entire talk at ted.npr.org. On the show today, ideas about jumpstarting creativity. And sometimes what you need to spark that creativity is something completely out of the ordinary. Yeah. Which is what Helen Marriage... Mm -hmm. Pleasure. ...tries to do on a pretty ambitious scale. Uh, I mean, I think what we do sits at a very strange junction of the arts 
and transformation of place. So you can see that the audience, who aren't necessarily the kind of people who would ever go into a gallery, are moved by the way the imagination of an artist can transform their daily experience. Helen works as a director at a company called Artichoke. Based in the UK, and we uh, create extraordinary art events in the public realm. Basically, these large-scale art installations that exist to ignite creativity, to spark joy, to create moments of wonder in the everyday. You know, if I say moments to you, you'll think falling in love or your first child being born or disastrous things or funny things. It's the moments. It's not the routine that you remember. And Helen and her team had an idea in mind to really disrupt the routine in one of the busiest cities in the world, London. Helen Marriage picks up the story from the TED stage. Imagine it's a world city. Like all our cities, it's dedicated to toil, trade and traffic. It's a machine to get you to work on time and back. And we're all complicit in wanting the routines to be uh, fixed and for everybody to be able to know what's going to happen next. And yet, what if this amazing city could be turned into a stage, a platform for something so unimaginable that would somehow transform people's lives? We do these things often in Britain. I'm sure you do them wherever you're from. Here's Horse Guards Parade, and here's something that we do often. It's always about winning things. It's about the marathon or winning a war or triumphant cricket team coming home. We close the streets, everybody claps. But for theatre, not possible. Except a story told by a French company, a saga about a little girl and a giant elephant that came to visit for four days, and all I had to do was persuade the public authorities that shutting the city for four days was something completely normal. So for people who don't know the story or even the huge sort of large-scale performance that you mounted, um, tell me, what is the story of the Sultan's Elephant? So the Sultan's Elephant is about a sultan aboard a time-traveling machine which comes in the form of a giant elephant. You have to stop me when it gets ridiculous. You have to imagine me trying to negotiate this with the 25 men in uniform who control London. So I'd say, well, it's a kind of fairy tale and there's a little girl who arrives in her rocket because she's travelling through time and space and a sultan has heard about her journey and he wants to meet her. So he commissions an elephant flying machine and he arrives with his entourage. You can imagine how well this was going down. Um, His entourage of concubines and eunuchs. And he coincides with her just in London at this amazing moment. And they spend four days meeting each other, but more importantly, meeting the people of London, doing the things that any visitor to a city would do, traveling on a bus, going to a party, and then... She decides to leave, her rocket is reassembled, the sultan and his entourage mourn her departure and she disappears in a puff of smoke. Simple. (laughs) (laughs) So that was a two-minute version of a seven-year conversation. Maybe one thing we should say is about the scale. So when you say large elephant, people think of an elephant. But this totally articulate, moving-in-every-direction elephant was the size of a three-storey building. It was in feet, it was... 40 feet high and aboard it were 14 what called manipulator puppeteers who were moving the trunk and the eyes and the body and the legs and the tail all of it moved I mean all anyone ever said is it looks so real which it didn't it was obviously made of 
you know, wood and steel and hydraulics. But it, like the best puppet shows you've ever seen, you stopped watching the mechanics and just saw this magnificent creature. And do you remember the date that you actually started? You were on the streets of London. What what date? Yeah, it was May two thousand and six. All right, May of two thousand six. And where in London was it? So we closed central London. So if any of your listeners have been to London, we closed the area from Trafalgar Square, Horse Guards Parade, um, the Mall, which leads down to Buckingham Palace, Marlborough Road, St James's Piccadilly, um, wow. in a mass hay market, all of that. So we closed the absolute centre. All right, May of 2006 comes. The streets are blocked. The centre of London is clear. Take me there. Like, do you have... You just gather at a certain place. No, you have place. to be with me the night before. So the night before, okay. Nikki and I, my partner, we stood in the mall, and it was completely deserted. And we, I remember, we both looked at each other and said, "Do you think anyone will come?" Because the event is free to the public, you don't have any sense of an audience or who might come or anything. So the night before, we were nervous. And then the show started with the little girl's rocket apparently crash-landed into a street outside the Athenaeum, which is one of the big clubs in central London. And if you went there at six o'clock in the morning, this enormous rocket, 30, 40 feet high, made of wooden frame, looking like something out of a Jules Verne novel, so it was all slightly set in that period, um, was embedded into the ground with smoke billowing out of the floor as if it had just crashed. And it did nothing for the day, for the Thursday of the performance. The rocket just sat there. Well, no sign of this infamous elephant yet, but what is a lot more exciting is what I'm looking at in front of me. It's an upturned rocket. It looks like it has planted itself from the sky, about 20 foot high, this rocket. So 10 a.m. the next day, the lid comes off the rocket and the little girl, 24 feet of a little girl, with a beautiful flying helmet and her hair trapped underneath it, emerges from the top of the rocket. She's a giant puppet. She's a giant puppet. And she walks through Trafalgar Square into the Mall, which is the road that leads down to Buckingham Palace and onto Horse Guards Parade, where, miraculously, a giant elephant has appeared overnight. And the sultan, who's aboard the elephant, gets off the elephant to greet her, and then the show starts. And they, together and sometimes separately, just explore all of those areas of central London that we had negotiated was their sort of playground. And the first day, maybe 50,000 people came, which we thought wow. was great. It was great. I mean, it was controllable. It was, you know, amazing. But by the Sunday, we stopped counting, but the BBC said there were a million people on the streets. Wow. And if you look at the images, um, you can see that they were a million happy people. But we can smile. But we can believe in magic. But we can believe in wonder. When you when you think about art and the kind of art you do, you know, huge public events, um, how do they? How do you think they transform someone's ability to think in an imaginative and creative way in their own lives? I think that if you can physically transform a place, you can change forever the experience and the outlook of anybody who experiences that. So 
after the elephant, I mean, there, we've done loads of other shows since then, but it's interesting, the elephant, because it was the first and the most shocking in a way, because it really did, uh, nobody tried to do anything like this before. We got a, an email, we got thousands and thousands of emails. We got an email from a man who said, I woke today with the most extraordinary feelings of grief and joy grief that I'll never see them again and joy that I met them. Thank you for teaching me that cynicism is not a way of life. So just in that one little email you can see the extraordinary transforming effect that those few days had on people. That's Helen Marriage. She's director of Artichoke. It's an organization that helps produce large-scale art performances in public spaces. By the way, the name of the French marionette company that created the Sultan's Elephant is called Royal Deluxe. You can see Helen's full talk at TED.com. On the show today, ideas about jump-starting creativity. Stay with us. I'm Guy Raz, and you're listening to the TED Radio Hour from NPR. This message comes from NPR sponsor Design Matters with Debbie Millman, a podcast from the TED Audio Collective that follows how incredibly creative people design the arc of their lives. What goes through the mind of visionaries like Ethan Hawke and Jacqueline Woodson? Find Design Matters wherever you listen. It's the TED Radio Hour from NPR. I'm Guy Raz. And on the show today, ideas about jumpstarting creativity. And whether you're creating a masterpiece or just brainstorming ideas for work, Marilia Pezzo says there's one practical way to inspire creative thinking. Take a walk. Marilee's a behavioral and learning scientist at Stanford, and she spoke about her idea from the TED stage. So the creative process, you know this, from the first idea to the final product is a long process. It's super iterative, lots of refinement, blood, sweat, tears, and years. And we're not saying you're going to go out for a walk and come back with the Sistine Chapel in your left hand, right? So what frame of the creative process did we focus on? Just this first part, just brainstorming, coming up with a new idea. So we actually ran four studies with a variety of people. You were either walking indoors or outdoors. All of these studies found the same conclusion. I'm only going to tell you about one of them today. So one of the tests we used for creativity was alternate uses. And this test, you have four minutes, and your job is to come up with as many other ways to use common everyday objects as you can think of. So, for example, what else would you do with a key other than to use it for opening up a lock? So people came up with many ideas as they could, and we had to decide, is this creative or not? So the definition of creativity that a lot of people go with is appropriate novelty. So for something to be appropriate, it has to be realistic. So unfortunately, you can't use a key as an eyeball. Boo. But novel is the second thing, is that nobody had to have said it. So for us, it had to be appropriate first. And then for novelty, nobody else in the entire population that we surveyed could have said it. So you might think you could use a key to scratch somebody's car. But if somebody else said that, you didn't get credit for it. Neither of you did. However, only one person said this. If you were dying and it were a murder mystery and you had to carve the name of the murderer into the ground with your dying words. So one person said this. <laughs> And it's a creative idea because it's appropriate and it's novel. So you either did this test and came up with ideas while you were seated or 
while you were walking on a treadmill. <laughs> They did the test twice with different objects. Three groups. The first group sat first and then sat again for the second test. The second group sat first and then did the second test while walking on a treadmill. The third group, and this is interesting, they walked on the treadmill first and then they sat. Okay, so the two groups that sat together for the first test, they looked pretty similar to each other and they averaged about 20 creative ideas per person. The group that was walking on the treadmill did almost twice as well. So, remember, they took the test twice. The people who sat twice for that second test, they didn't get any better. Practice didn't help. But these same people who were sitting and then went on the treadmill got a boost from walking. Here's the interesting thing. The people who were walking on the treadmill still had a residue effect of the walking, and they were still creative afterwards. So the implication of this is that you should go for a walk before your next big meeting and just start brainstorming right away. So we have five tips for you that will help make this the best effect possible. So first, you want to pick a problem or a topic to brainstorm. So this is not the shower effect. This is not when you're in the shower and all of a sudden a new idea pops out of the shampoo bottle. This is something you're thinking about ahead of time, and they're intentionally thinking about brainstorming a different perspective on the walk. Secondly, I get asked this a lot, is this okay while running? Well, the answer for me is that if I were running, the only new idea I would have would be to stop running. So, <laughs> but if running for you is a comfortable pace, good. So it turns out whatever physical activity is not taking a lot of attention. So just walking at a comfortable pace is a good choice. Also, you want to come up with as many ideas as you can. So one key of creativity is to not lock on that first idea. Keep coming up with new ones until you pick one or two to pursue. You might worry that you don't want to write them down because what if you will forget them? So the idea here is to speak them. Everybody was speaking their new ideas. So you can put your headphones on and record through your phone and then just pretend you're having a creative conversation, right? Because the act of writing your idea down is already a filter. You're going to be like, is this good enough to write down? And then you write it down. So just speak as many as you can and record them and think about them later. And finally, don't do this forever. Right? If you're on the walk and that idea is not coming to you, come back to it later at another time. Thank you. That's Marilee Apezzo. She's an instructor of medicine at Stanford University. To find out more about Marilee, go to TED.com. So earlier in the show, we heard economist Tim Harford talk about how unexpected challenges can make someone more creative. But he also has another idea about how to jumpstart creativity multitasking, which sounds kind of weird because normally creativity and multitasking do not go hand in hand. Yeah, and, and I tend to agree. I mean, not everyone agrees. Some, and maybe it's a generational thing, I don't know, but some people seem to think it's, it's just great to be watching Game of Thrones while also... Tweeting and Snapchatting. Yeah, I mean, some people love it, some people hate it. I personally hate it. But I think that there is a different phenomenon that we shouldn't hate, a different phenomenon that we, we should actually embrace, and for want of a better word, I, I've called it slow-motion multitasking. Uh, what is it? What does that mean? It's very simple. Slow-motion multitasking is having several important projects on the go simultaneously. And I, I first noticed this in my own life, where I was working on a book for years, and I, I got stuck. 
and I actually stopped and wrote another book and then restarted and finished the first book. Hmm. So that, I mean, that was, that's an, it feels like an extreme case. I'm, I have to write every week for the Financial Times and I have two BBC radio shows and so I, I sort of stop my book writing and I work on them and then I stop and I, I constantly feel like I have these different things on my plate and sometimes I think to myself really I should focus if I was really if I was a proper artist rather than just some hack I would be focusing and achieving something great in a in a single endeavor and then I look at the real greats the great artists the great scientists and I realize it's nonsense because almost all of them had really serious projects on the go simultaneously. Here's Tim Harford again on the TED stage. Look no further than Albert Einstein. In 1905, he published four remarkable scientific papers. One of them was on Brownian motion. It provided empirical evidence that atoms exist, and it laid out the basic mathematics behind most of financial economics. Another one was on the theory of special relativity. Another one was on the photoelectric effect. That's why solar panels work. It's a nice one. And the fourth introduced an equation you might have heard of, E equals mc squared. So tell me again how you shouldn't do several things at once. Slow motion multitasking feels like a counterintuitive idea. But the reason it seems counterintuitive is because we're used to lapsing into multitasking out of desperation. We're in a hurry. We want to do everything at once. If we were willing to slow multitasking down, we might find that it works quite brilliantly. Sixty years ago, a young psychologist by the name of Bernice Ageson began a long research project into the personalities and the working habits of 40 leading scientists. The research went on for decades. In fact, it continued even after Professor Ageson herself had died. And one of the questions that it answered was how is it that some scientists are able to go on producing important work right through their lives? What is it about these people? Well, the pattern that emerged was clear, and I think to some people, surprising. The top scientists kept changing the subject. They would shift topics during their first 100 published research papers. Do you want to guess how often? Three times? Five times? No. On average, the most enduringly creative scientists switched topics 43 times in their first 100 research papers. Wow. I mean, it's, it's almost unbelievable how they were working on all these different things at once. Yes. So basically, every time they published a new paper, it was, on, it was in a new area this curiosity, which kept them fresh. I think there are probably three reasons why the slow-motion multitasking works. The first is that when you switch out of a problem where you're a bit stuck, the new context helps you forget your old wrong answer. You know, you're, it's the crossword puzzle problem. You know, you're stuck on a crossword puzzle, you've got the wrong answer in your head. All you need to do is forget it for a second. So just a change of context helps you solve a problem. The second reason is different areas cross-fertilize each other. So an idea that you come up with in one area helps you in another. 
And the third reason is, I think it just provides you with a, an outlet. You have time to, to de-stress, to relax. You're feeling stuck, you're feeling under pressure. And you've just got something interesting to get on with when you're stuck. Um, something productive. And as with my own experience of, of literally stopping writing a book and writing another book. We can all get stuck sometimes, even Albert Einstein. Ten years after the original miraculous year that I described, Einstein was putting together the pieces of his theory of general relativity, his greatest achievement. And he was exhausted. And so he turned to an easier problem. He proposed the stimulated emission of radiation, which, as you may know, is the zer in laser. So he's laying down the theoretical foundation for the laser beam. And then, while he's doing that, he moves back to general relativity, and he's refreshed. He sees what the theory implies, that the universe isn't static. It's expanding. It's an idea so staggering, Einstein can't bring himself to believe it for years. So that's the case for slow-motion multitasking. And I'm not promising that it's going to turn you into Einstein, but it is a powerful way to organize our creative lives. And I want to give you one final example, my favorite example, Charles Darwin. When he left school, age of 18, he was initially interested in two fields, so zoology and geology. Pretty soon, he signed up to be the onboard naturalist on the Beagle. While he was on the Beagle, he began researching coral reefs. This is a great synergy between his two interests in zoology and geology, and it starts to get him thinking about slow processes. But when he gets back from the voyage, his interests start to expand even further. Psychology, botany, for the rest of his life, he's moving backwards and forwards between these different fields. He never quite abandons any of them. Then, he has his eureka moment. In a flash, he realizes how species could emerge and evolve slowly through this process of the survival of the fittest. It all comes to him, he writes it all down, every single important element of the theory of, of evolution. But then, his son William's born. Well, there's a natural experiment right there. You get to observe the development of a human infant. So immediately, Darwin starts making notes. Now, of course, he's still working on the theory of evolution and the development of the human infant. But during all of this, he realizes he doesn't really know enough about taxonomy. So he starts studying that. And in the end, Origin of Species is finally published 20 years after Darwin set out all the basic elements. Then, The Descent of Man, controversial book. And then, the book about the development of the human infant. The, the one that was inspired when, it, when he could see his son, William, crawling on the, the sitting room floor in front of him. When the book was published, William was 37 years old. Yeah, I mean, it, it seems almost intuitive that we would draw on our personal experiences to generate new ideas, as you pointed out. I mean, even Darwin did that. So it, it makes sense that our brains would dart in all these different directions at the same time. Yeah, but that can be incredibly stressful. So I think the creativity 
comes naturally from that, from having these different projects. They cross-fertilize each other. They provide a richer pattern of references that you can use. They unstick you when you're stuck. I mean, that's all great. But I think we have to recognize that having six projects on your plate, in your inbox, on your desk, it can be incredibly stressful and anxiety-producing. I mean, that's one of the modern productivity challenges, I think. How do you handle multiple projects without just constantly flitting from one to another in this state of heightened anxiety? How do you, how do you make it a productive experience and a relaxing experience? In 1837, Darwin starts studying earthworms. He fills his billiard room with earthworms in pots with glass covers. He shines lights on them to see if they'll respond. He holds a hot poker next to them to see if they move away. He chews tobacco and he blows on the earthworms to see if they have a sense of smell. He even plays the bassoon at the earthworms. I like to think of this great man when he's tired He's stressed, he's anxious about the reception of his book, The Descent of Man. Darwin would go into the billiard room to relax by studying the earthworms intensely. And that's why it's appropriate that one of his last great works is the formation of vegetable mold through the action of worms. (laughs) He worked upon that book for 44 years. We don't live in the 19th century anymore. I don't think any of us could sit on our creative or scientific projects for 44 years. But we do have something to learn from the great slow-motion multitaskers. The modern world seems to present us with a choice. If we're not going to fast-twitch from browser window to browser window, we have to live like a hermit, focus on one thing to the exclusion of everything else. I think that's a false dilemma. We can make multitasking work for us, unleashing our natural creativity. We just need to slow it down. Thank you very much. That's economist Tim Harford. By the way, Tim has a new season of his podcast out. It's called 50 Things That Made the Modern Economy. You can find all of Tim's talks at TED.com. I let my mind wander What did it do? It just kept right on going Until it got back to you Hey, thanks for listening to this episode of Jumpstarting Creativity this week. If you want to find out more about who was on it, go to ted.npr.org. And to see hundreds more TED Talks, check out ted.com or the TED app. Our production staff at NPR includes Jeff Rogers, Sanaz Meshkanpur, Janae West, Neva Grant, Casey Herman, Rachel Faulkner, Deba Motasham, James Delahousie, and J.C. Howard, with help from Daniel Shukin and Katie Monteleone. Our partners at TED are Chris Anderson, Colin Helms, Anna Phelan, and Janet Lee. I'm Guy Raz, and you've been listening to Ideas Worth Spreading right here on the TED Radio Hour from NPR.
Support for this NPR podcast and the following message come from our sponsor, Acoustic, an independent marketing cloud that believes customer trust is the most valuable currency in today's business environment. Learn more about the company's own commitments to data ethics principles and how these principles can help your business thrive at Acoustic.com.